Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January 9th, 2023. Reader today is Dave Sauerman and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Pert Handicapped. First story comes to us from Dolly Butts, a writer for the Sioux City Journal. The title, Goodwill Makes Rezoning Request, Adult Day Habilitation Center planned on West 4th Street. Goodwill of the Great Plains is asking the Sioux City Council to approve a rezoning request so they can build a new adult day habilitation center and a maintenance building across the street from its campus located at 3100 West 4th Street. The 3.4 acre tract of land is currently zoned neighborhood conservation. Goodwill is requesting that the property be rezoned to general commercial which is intended for commercial, retail, service, and office uses arranged on individual sites or in multi-tenant centers. Bridget Solomon, Goodwill of the Great Plains Chief Executive, said Friday that the existing adult day habilitation program has been been in operation for more than 20 years and has continued to grow. Quote, right now we're utilizing as much space in our existing building as we can kind of expanding into our cafeteria and other areas, she said. This building is envisioned as an opportunity to create a more modern facility for our adult day and stay habilitation programs and also allow us to expand our mission. Solomon said the multi-use community center would include a gym, a gaming room, and spaces for programming such as an arts and culture room. She said meeting rooms and office space for staff are also planned. We're hoping to be able to do our Goodwill-sponsored events, such as our career fairs that we lost through our job center. Our Christmas shoe and mitten party will be hosted in that location, she said. We just need more space to do all of those things and continue to carry out our mission. Solomon said building the Adult Day Habilitation Center is the focus of the project's first phase. The maintenance building would be constructed during the second phase. That building would allow Goodwill of the Great Plains to expand job training opportunities and provide enclosed storage for its fleet of vehicles. The Sioux City Planning and Zoning Commission unanimously voted to approve the rezoning request at its December 13th meeting, which advanced the item on to the City Council. City documents state that the expansion of Goodwill's campus is not expected to disrupt existing residential uses in the area. The site has been the subject of prior zoning requests for truck parking, which has not been supported at the site because of the proximity to homes and conflicts with the city's comprehensive plan. City staff feels the current proposed site better suits the area, the documents state. Solomon said she hopes to open the new Adult Day Habilitation Center by the end of 2024 or early 2025. Since the project is still in its early stages, she said plans have not been finalized and the total cost is still being calculated. She expects those things to be finalized in the next couple of months. There's a lot of pieces that have to fall in place to make that happen, but that is our hope and our goal, she said. This year, 2023, is our 100th anniversary as a Goodwill and part of the Goodwill movement. It's kind of neat to be launching something that's going to be really significant for us to grow 
our mission programs. Based on preliminary data, Solomon said Goodwill of the Great Plains served more than 28,000 people in the region in 2022. We're very proud of that growth. This is just going to help us catapult into the future and provide opportunities to serve the community in a broader way, aligned with our mission, of course, she said, of this project. It is really exciting to us. Our next story comes to us from Earl Horlick. Launchpad Children's Museum Kids Learn Chemistry Lesson While Creating a Punking Snowman. Frosty and Icy ate too many snowballs. What did the wastebaskets turned snowmen do next? Well, they vomited out all of the snowballs, actually cotton balls, in a fuzzy bubbling mess that included water, vinegar, baking soda, and believe it or not, glitter. Uh, kids love science projects and they love to be grossed out. Launchpad Children's Museum Education Manager Shelby Schroeder explained on January 5th. Our vomiting snowman demonstration checks both of those boxes, she said. Indeed, the 623 Pearl Street Kid-Friendly Museum devoted the week of January 2 through 6 to projects related to people made of fake snow. According to Community and Inclusion Coordinator Javier Perez, uh, do-it-yourself experiments are especially popular at the Science Museum. We try to keep things as interactive as popular, he said. Children can learn how to make vomiting snowmen here at Launchpad. They can also try to do experiments with common household ingredients when they are at home. Uh, maybe yes, but maybe no. Sometimes what happened at Launchpad must also stay at Launchpad. The vomiting snowmen may be a bit messy for parents to clean up, Schroeder admitted. That's because the vomit is created when the baking soda, uh, which is used as a base, and vinegar, which is an acid, combines making a carbon dioxide gas. So what does the red and the green litter contribute in the snowman throw up? Well, I guess it just makes things festive. Schroeder said she, Perez, and the rest of the Launchpad staff are constantly coming up with theme weeks in which kids can make crafts or art pieces, as well as participate in simple science experiments. In other words, they're learning stuff while having a good time. If that's the case, how many snowballs can a snowman actually eat? Uh, as many as he wants to, we imagine, since Schroeder has plenty of cotton balls to spare. Plus, she has just enough baking soda and vinegar in the event that Frosty and Icy get another upset stomach. So if you go uh, to Launchpad Children's Museum, it's open from 9 in the morning to 5 p.m. Monday through Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. On Thursdays, it's open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, Friday and Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. on Sundays. That's located at 623 Pearl Street in Sioux City. If you'd like to visit their website, it's launchpadmuseum.com. Next, we have the Crime and Courts, little latest Woodbury County court report. Um, Gilberto Tangero Apilonio, age 29, from Sioux City, 
was arrested for eluding possession of a controlled substance, third offense, operating while intoxicated. He was sentenced January 5th to six years in prison. John Marshall Miller, age 22, of Sioux City, uh, arrested for eluding second-degree theft, operating while intoxicated. He was sentenced January 5th to five years in prison, suspended, three years probation, uh, 10 days in jail for operating while intoxicated. James Albert Randy Fee, age 44, of Sioux City, arrested for possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 3rd to five years in prison. And Corey Michiel Unes, age 31, of Sioux City, arrested for domestic abuse assault, probation violation, sentenced January 3rd to five years in prison, suspended, three years probation, 150 days jail for probation violation. Uh, then before Judge James, uh, all, all of those previous were before Judge Patrick, Judge Patrick Tott. Next is before Judge James Dane, uh, Jonette Lola Medina, age 38, from Harlan, Iowa, arrested for forgery, second-degree theft, two counts, sentenced December 21 to 15 years in prison. Before Judge Todd Deck, uh, Dominique Chavez, age 18, from Sioux City, arrested for second-degree burglary, second-degree robbery, Sentence reconsidered, January 4th, 10 years in prison, suspended, 3 years probation. Here is the Siouxland 5-day forecast. Uh, for today, cloudy, uh, winds out of the southwest, 6 to 12 miles per hour, and 41 degrees. And tonight, clear, and the wind 6 to 12 miles out of the west, 20 degrees for the low. On Tuesday, intervals of clouds and sun, Winds out of the southeast, 6 to 12 miles per hour, the high 43 degrees, the low 24 degrees. And on Wednesday, cloudier, uh, excuse me, colder with clouds and sun. Winds out of the north-northeast, 8 to 16 miles per hour, the high 28 degrees, the low 22. On Thursday, uh, sun and clouds. Winds out of the northwest, 12 to 25 miles per hour, the high 28 degrees, the low 18. And on Friday, cloudy and sunny, partly cloudy. Uh, winds out of the south-southwest, 8 to 16 miles per hour, the high 26, the low 19 degrees. The uh, normal high for the state, 29 degrees, the normal low, 11. The record high for the state was set in 2002 at 64 degrees. And the record low for the state was set in 1979 at 17 degrees below zero. Uh, next from the sports page, the Sioux City Musketeers erupted for seven goals in their shutout victory over the Sioux Falls Stampede on Sunday. Sioux City netted multiple goals in every period. It began when Caden Shanahan, uh, Shahan, scored at the 628 mark of the first and was followed over a minute and a half later by Ryan Conmey on the power play to make it 2-0 Sioux City. In the second, Sawyer Scholl was fed a nice pass by Cole Longacre that led to Scholl getting behind the Sioux Falls defense and finishing the play with a backhanded goal. Ben Potras scored late in the period on the power play for his ninth of the season 
and Sioux City grabbed a 4-0 lead. In quick succession, just past the halfway point in the third, the Muskies officially put the game away. Comey lit the lamp for the second time in the game for his team-leading 16th goal of the season at 11:22. Dylan Goldbot took a pass from Conmey and finished backhanded on a breakaway at 12:03, and Sam DeCunt finished the day scoring with his sixth goal of the season at 12:58, punching in a rebound. Croy Kochendorfer earned the game's first star and stopped all 23 shots that he faced in the contest. The shutout is the second he's posted in the season. Between his two starts this week, Kochendorfer stopped 60 out of 63 shots for a .95 save percentage and a 1.44 GAA for the weekend. Kanmi accrued four points on a pair of goals and a pair of assists to secure the second star and grant Solskensi, uh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering these names, I apologize, had a hand in three goals, collecting three assists to nab the third star. The Musketeers, who are 13, 11, and 5, take three points from the three-game weekend. They hit the ice again on Friday when they take on the Omaha Lancers on the road at 7.05. They return to their home ice on Saturday, January 14, to take on the Fargo Force at 6.05 at the Tyson Events Center. Uh, South Dakota State football. South Dakota State University wins its first FCS championship. Uh, this story comes to us from Frisco, Texas. Mark Gronowski threw three touchdown passes and ran 51 yards for another score as South Dakota State won its first national championship with a 45-21 win Sunday over North Dakota State, which lost for the first time in its 10 FCS title game appearances. As a true freshman two seasons ago, Gronkowski tore the ACL, ACL left knee on the opening series of the football championship subdivision title game. Now nearly 20 months after a loss in that unprecedented spring finale and after the quarterback missed the entire 2020 season, the Jackrabbits, who are 14-1, beat their border, excuse me, border state rival for the biggest prize in Coach John Stregmeyer's 26th season at his alma mater. And here's today in history. On this date in 1788, Connecticut became the fifth state to ratify the United States Constitution. In 1793, Frenchman Jean-Pierre Bonchard, using a hot air balloon, flew from Philadelphia to Woodbury, New Jersey. In 1861, Mississippi became the second state to succeed from the Union. The same day, the Star of the West, a merchant vessel bringing reinforcements and supplies to federal troops at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, retreated because of artillery fire. In 1913, Richard Milhouse Nixon, the 37th President of the United States, was born in Yorba Linda, California. In 1916, the World War I Gallipoli ended after eight months with an Ottoman Empire victory as Allied forces withdrew. In 1945, during World War II, American forces began landing on the shores of Laguien Gulf in the Philippines as the Battle of Luzon got underway, resulting in an Allied victory over Imperial Japanese forces. In 1951, the United Nations headquarters in New York officially opened. 
1958, President Dwight David Eisenhower, in his State of the Union address to Congress, warned of the threat of communist imperialism. In 1972, reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes, speaking by telephone from the Bahamas to reporters in Hollywood, said a purported autobiography of him, as told to writer Clifford Irving, was a fake. In 1987, the White House released a January 1986 memorandum prepared for President Ronald Reagan by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North showing a link between United States arms sales to Iran and the release of American hostages in Lebanon. In 2003, UN weapons inspectors said there was no smoking gun to prove Iraq had nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons, but they demanded that Baghdad provide private access to scientists and fresh evidence to back its claim that it had destroyed its weapons of mass destruction. In 2005, Mahmoud Abbas, the number two man in the Palestinian hierarchy during Yasser Arafat's rule, was elected president of the Palestinian Authority by a landslide. And in 2020, Chinese state media said a preliminary investigation into recent cases of viral pneumonia had identified the probable cause as a new type of coronavirus. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the IRA Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader today is Dave Sowerman, and it is time for us to take a short break and read the obituaries for today. Imogene Andrews, Moorhead, Iowa, 82 years of age, passed away Thursday, January 5th. A celebration of life will be held January 12th at 11 a.m. at Moorhead Christian Church in Moorhead, I believe that's Minnesota. No, I'm sorry, Moorhead, Iowa. Uh, burial will be private at a later date at Spring Valley Cemetery in Moorhead. Uh, visitation will occur one hour prior to the service time at the church. Arrangements with Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments at Ottawa, Iowa. A recording of service will be available at the Funeral Home's website. Our next obituary, Brandy Nicole Bergman, age 40, entered into the arms of her Heavenly Father on Saturday, January 1st, 2023, after a short, courageous, and hard-fought battle with cancer. Services will be held at 10.30 in the morning on Monday at Westside Church, 15050 Dodge Road. Interment will be at Fort Calhoun Cemetery. Visitation with family will be from 3 to 6 p.m. on Sunday at the church. She is survived by her loving husband of 14 years, Jeremy, three daughters, Madeline, Lillian, and Nora, mother, Susan Foster, Bose, sisters Noel Lamoureux and Scott, and Marissa Bose, grandmother Joyce Foster, father and mother-in-law Tim and Ladina Bergman, sister-in-law Sarah Drown and Dan, nieces Harper Lamoureux and Monique Drown, and nephews Carter Lamoureux and Drew Drown. She was preceded to death by her father, Tom Bose, and sister, Crystal Bose. Memorials to family choice. Our next obituary, Gwendolyn E. Gwen Bierman from Kingsley, 97 years old, 
passed away Wednesday, January 4th. Services will be January 8th at 2 p.m. at the Rhodey Funeral Home in Kingsley. Visitation will be January 8th from noon until service time at the funeral home. Our next obituary, Galena Brockhaus of South Sioux City, 84 years of age, passed away Thursday, January 5th. Uh, services will be January 12th at 11.30 a.m. at St. Michael's Catholic Church, South Sioux City. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Uh, visitation will be January 11th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Our next obituary, Willis Carver, 68 years of age, from South Sioux City, passed away Thursday, January 5th. Services will be January 10th at 2 p.m. Meadow Star United Methodist Church, Washtaw, Iowa. Burial will be at Grand Meadow Cemetery. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements will be with Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home, South Sioux City, Iowa. Our next obituary, Gerda Decker, born in 1936, uh, passed away on January 4th at Azira Health in Regency Square. Burial services will be at a later date. Arrangements are with Christie Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel. Hedda was born May 6th, 19th, excuse me, 1936, in Rotterdam, Netherlands. She was educated in the Netherlands and studied in the languages of Dutch, French, English, and German. The Decker family was active in the underground network, secretly battling the Nazis during World War II, and Hedda carried many messages from house to house. Hedda had lived in New Zealand and traveled to the United States with a friend. Hedda became a United States citizen in 1971. Hedda called Regency Square her home for a number of years, she was a warrior against her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. She is survived by her brother, Peter Yoke of the Netherlands, many nieces, nephews, and friends of the Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany, the family of Andrea Conrad, and many friends, including special friends, Rabbi Solben, Rabbi Green, and Gerald Weiner. Thanks to the special staff that had called her dear friends at Regency, Thank you for your thoughtfulness and your kindness. Shalom, dear friends. Our next obituary, John Donlin of Lamars, 77 years of age, passed away Wednesday, January 4th. Services will be January 10th at 10.30 in the morning at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph Church in Lamars. Burial will be at St. Joseph Cemetery in Neptune Hinton, Iowa. Visitation will be January 9th from 4 to 8 p.m. Uh, Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Lamars and resumes January 10th from 9.30 a.m. until service time at the church. Our next obituary, Linda Marie Grotkin of Sioux City, 75 years of age, passed away Wednesday, January 4th at a local hospital after a brief illness. Massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 in the morning 
on Saturday at St. Michael's Catholic Church in South Sioux City with Father Anthony Widener officiating. Visitation with the family will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday with a vigil and rosary service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Online condolences may be given at Meyer Bro, uh, it's, I'm going to spell it M E Y E R B R O S chapels.com. Linda was born August 5th, 1947, in Sioux City, the daughter of Glenn and Yvonne O'Connell Tucker. She married Francis D. Grotkin on June 7th, 1969, in Sioux City. The couple owned and operated various businesses in Sioux City and the area. Francis preceded Linda in death on May 4, 2002. Linda enjoyed doing word search puzzles and playing other games in her spare time, and she enjoyed spending time at the Sudland Center for Active Generations. She is survived by her sons, Francis Nicky Grotkin II of Bloomfield, Nebraska, and Randall Grotkin and Kim Watson of Dakota City, granddaughter Samantha Grotkin, and Carlos Rodello of South Sioux City, Kristen Grotkin of Boise, Idaho, and Brooklyn Grotkin of Sioux City. Great-grandchildren, Autumn, Sonny, Gavin, and Luciana. Sister, Lisa Hagberg, uh, Marriott, and her husband, Dan. Special friend, Larry Besch, and daughter-in-law, Shelley Grotkin, and Mike Vought. Linda was preceded in death by her father, Glenn Tucker, mother, Yvonne Hagberg, stepfather, Melvin Hagberg, and two brothers, Kirk Tucker and Randall Tucker. Our next obituary, Bradley Holtquist, South Sioux City, Iowa, 56 years of age, passed away Saturday, December 24th. Service will be held at a later date. Moore and Becker Hunt is handling the arrangements. Online condolences may be made to MeyerBROSChapels.com. Brad was born February 5th, 1966 in Sioux City to Dennis and Gurry Cavanaugh Hiltquist. He began his career in 1984 in the United States Army and he retired in 2008. Brad was on multiple deployments and graduated from the French Commando School. He was airborne during his time in Fort Bragg. He was a big movie buff, Jurassic Park and Star Wars being some of his favorites. He enjoyed playing video games, Uno, and card games. He was passionate about Taekwondo and earned multiple awards. Brad loved his Jeep, his dog Dakota, beer, tequila, and hanging out with his friends at the huddle. Brad was proud to serve his country, and he looked forward to retirement. He was one of a kind, always there to help anyone. He was anyone's hero and best friend. He will be missed terribly, but always remembered and forever celebrated. He is survived by his sister, Kimberly, Srini, uh, Iyer, nieces Natasha, Tabitha, and Sarah Selene, lifetime family friends, Judy Clayton, Donald Clayton and Chris Atkins, Dina McRoberts, girlfriend, and her children, Nick Broderson, Victoria Mason, 
Britta Lemon, Erica Broderson, and Lane McRoberts. Special friends, uh, Tweedle, Danny G, Nate, Melissa, and all his other amazing friends at the huddle and around the world. He was preceded in death by his parents and brother, Jeffrey Hiltquist. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the family for a donation in Bradley's name. Next, we have an editorial from the editorial board. Uh, this uh, is titled, In Dropping Iowa, Democrats Pivot Away from Rural America. The Democratic National Committee's decision to drop Iowa from first state primary status is a shift away from rural America. In early December, Democrats led by President Biden changed the primary election order, which had put Iowa as the first state since 1972. This was a role Iowans performed diligently through their caucus process. Democrats have removed Iowa from the early primary states. Instead, South Carolina will be the first state in 2024, followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Michigan. The new presidential nominating contest calendar is expected to be ratified by the full Democratic National Committee in early February in Philadelphia. Here's the Democrats' knock on Iowa. Biden, Democratic National Committee Chairperson Tom Perez, and others don't like caucuses because they say the in-person requirement excludes many working-class voters from the process. In a caucus, people spend the better part of an election day trying to gather support for their candidates. Also, so goes the argument, I was not racially diverse enough to be a representative of the country and have such an important role in the primary. And finally, there's the wreck in the 2020 primary when results were delayed due to administrative issues and the malfunctioning application. Uh, the nation waited for results that didn't come until after the next state. New Hampshire had voted. Traditionally, a win in Iowa can supply a shot of momentum to the candidate, as it did to such Democrats as Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama. Before 2020, Iowa Democrats had reported the election results quickly and without issue. But after the 2016 primary, they were forced by the Democratic National Committee to change their process. Candidate Bernie Sanders pushed party leaders to require caucus states to report raw numbers as well as final numbers. That meant Iowa no longer could simply report the final results as it had for the previous 12 elections and instead had to supply results of the first alignment and second alignment of votes as well. That change, along with the use of an app that wasn't properly vetted, led to the delay in results. It was a mess, but Iowa had reeled off 12 straight elections without such problems. So, the narrative that Iowa lost first state status due to a bungled 2020 primary doesn't really stand up under the historical context. We understand the criticism of the caucus system and that Iowa's racial makeup is not representative of that of the nation as a whole. About 75% of the United States residents are white, while 90% of Iowans are white. It makes sense the party would want more people of color involved 
in the early primary states. But why is New Hampshire 92% white in the first five states? There appears a larger political motive for national Democrats to leave Iowa in the dust. And that is Iowa and that is Iowa no longer is in play. In the past two presidential elections, Iowans went strongly for Trump, and the midterms cemented that trend. But Iowa supported plenty of Democrats. Obama twice, Al Gore, Bill Clinton twice, and Michael Dukakis for the presidency. Most of the new first five states could be considered battleground states, especially Georgia, Michigan, and Nevada. New Hampshire has voted Democrat in the last six elections. But Democrat Hillary Clinton won by less than a percentage point in 2016. South Carolina is the outlier here. It's a red state, even more red than Iowa. No Democrat running for president has cracked even 45% of the vote in South Carolina in recent decades. So why South Carolina? We think Biden chose South Carolina because that was the state that put him on a path to the nomination in 2020. Biden came in fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire before South Carolina gave him a win and the momentum to earn the nomination. It's political payback. Democratic leaders can tout having more diverse battleground states, with some exceptions, in their first five. But those gains don't come without losses. In particular, rural Americans have lost their voice among early states. Iowa authored rural representation and, in fact, is closer to the national average of rural to urban residents than any of the first new first five states. According to the U.S. Census, the United States has an average of 93 people per square mile. Iowa has 57 people per square mile. The next closest state to the national average is New Hampshire with 154 per square mile. South Carolina, Michigan, and Georgia all have 170 or more people per square mile, while Nevada is even less densely populated than Iowa. Nearly all of its population comes from the metro areas of Las Vegas and Reno. The removal of Iowa from the DNC's first five primary states is a clear, pivotal, pivotal move towards urban voters and away from rural voters. About 20% of the nation is rural, according to the census. That's an important swath of the country and makes up 43% of Iowa, where farms and small towns create the state's backbone. Iowa Democrats have had a good run vetting Democratic candidates over the last 50 years. And those candidates who spoke from straw bales, frequented diners, and came face to face with humble, practical, earnest, and friendly Iowans had the opportunity to come away with a sense of what rural America is all about. Democrats will lose that in 2024, and that is a shame. We appreciate the Republicans will keep Iowa as its first state primary, and the welcome mat is out. Next, we have a column from Dan Lee, who is a regular columnist. Uh, he is the Marion Taft Cannon Professor in Humanities at Augustana College. Both my wife and I grew up on farms. Based on a first-hand experience, 
Both of us know that there is a good deal of practical wisdom to be gained from farmers. Practical wisdom that is a strength to draw upon as we begin a new year. My father-in-law frequently observed that a crop is not a crop until it is in the granary. And indeed, given the fickle nature of weather, even when corn and soybeans are flourishing with each day marking an amazing amount of new growth, the lush growth can be wiped out in a matter of minutes by a hailstorm. Through my agricultural activities these days are limited to a berry patch that I planted in Montana for my grandson, I can attest firsthand how devastating a hailstorm can be. The strawberries, uh, currant bushes, raspberries, and blueberry bushes were flourishing. Just in time for the arrival of my grandson and his parents, the strawberries, I planted both Ozark Beauty and Jewel strawberries, were starting to ripen. The currant bushes, one that produced red berries, uh, one that produced blackberries, and one that produced yellow berries, were sent heavenly, uh, or were set heavily with berries. Then, while we were at a family anniversary celebration a few miles away, a devastating hailstorm moved through with hailstones the size of marbles, totally destroying the strawberry plants and all of the ripening strawberries and stripped all the berries off the currant bushes. The raspberry bushes and the blueberry bushes were not quite as far along suffering some losses of leaves, but no damage to the still green berries. It was, to say the least, very demoralizing. The result of hours of backbreaking work was gone in just a few minutes. My berry patch was simply a hobby. Putting bread on our table did not depend on my little berry patch. The same could not be said of the farmers here in Illinois and Iowa, whose crops were destroyed by hail in a year of unpredictable weather. That was not the only havoc wreaked by volatile weather patterns. In many parts of the country, crops withered away because of a lack of rainfall. Damage was far more widespread than hailstorms, which led to affect relatively small areas. It was not a good year to be a farmer. My father-in-law, who had successful farming operation in Minnesota, frequently noted that when farmers have a good crop, they assume that is normal and when they have a lesser crop, they assume that is not normal. Instead, he observed that when farmers have an average crop, that is what is normal. With a bumper crop, the exception to what is normal, rather than that which defines what is normal. He was right about that. The practical wisdom of farmers, such as my father-in-law, applies not just to agriculture, but to all of life. As we begin a new year, it is with the hope that it will be prosperous, for such it is to be human. The reality, however, is that because of factors beyond our control, be it weather, interest rates, or any of a multiple of other things, there will be bumps in the road. There are all sorts of things that can go wrong. Not all of them will happen, but some of them will. The simple fact of the matter is that life is not perfect. The strength of the rural values instilled in those of us who grew up on farms is that they give us the courage to continue on. And yes, I am going to replant the strawberries in my grandson's berry patch. 
While we hope all that 2023 will be a good year, when all things are considered, hope is not wishful thinking. Instead, it is the quiet courage that enables one to continue on, even when things don't turn out the way that we would ideally like them to be. May 2023 be a year of hope and resilience for all of you and for all members of your family. Our next story comes to us from South Sioux City. A South Sioux City man has been arrested on charges of sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl at her father's home on Christmas. Michael R. Brown, 33, was arrested Saturday and booked into the Dakota County Jail on charges of first-degree sexual assault of a child and child abuse. His bond has yet to be set. According to court documents, Brown, a friend of the girl's father, had sex with the girl in her room in the South Sioux City home on December 25th. The teen told a South Sioux City police officer Brown had tried to touch her in the past and she and her cousin went to her room when he arrived. Brown entered the room later in the evening and after her cousin left, the two began playing a slapping game and Brown grabbed the girl's breast. A complaint filed in the Dakota County Court said Brown then kissed the girl who said she did not want to cause a scene so she paralyzed herself while Brown began touching her and removed her pants and underwear and began having sexual contact with her until the girl's cousin returned and sat down on a separate bed in the room. Brown then placed the girl on his lap and had sex with her while recording video on his phone. The girl got off Brown's lap when her father came upstairs and Brown went downstairs. The girl told her cousin not to say anything to anyone, but the cousin later told the girl's father what happened. When interviewed by police, the girl's father said Brown had been texting him and asking him when the girl was going to be home. Our next story, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers predict below normal runoff into Missouri River in 2023. After a year of drought led to below normal runoff totals into the Missouri River in 2022, river managers expect more of the same in 2023. The Corps of Engineers has forecast 2023 runoff into the river basin above Sioux City to be 20.8 million acre feet or 81% of the average of 25.7 feet. The 2022 total, <laughs> um, let, me, let me back up here. The Corps expects the river basin above Sioux City to be 20.8 million feet or 81% of the average of 25 million feet. Uh, which uh, in 2022 the total was 19 feet or 75% of the average which is the 30th, 30th lowest total in 125 years of record-keeping. Despite the low runoff totals and ongoing water conservation measures enough water remains in the river for water supply needs according to the Corps. Releases from Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton, South Dakota were raised to 14,000 cubic feet per second in mid-December to mitigate some of the effects of the frigid temperatures 
Releases will be reduced to 13,000 cubic feet per second Monday to maintain the winter rate of 12,000 cubic feet per second on Thursday. Releases from Gavin's Point will be adjusted to the extent practical to help mitigate any negative effects of the cold weather. We know the importance of our operations to water supply, according to John Remus, Chief of the Corps, Missouri River Basin Water Management Division. He said that in a news release. Water storage in the river's six reservoirs remaining below the flood control zone. The Corps expects to begin the 23 runoff season on March 1 at 45 uh, MAF, well below the flood zone control that starts at 56 MAF. The Corps reported mountain snowpack that feeds the upper river basin when it melts in the spring, slightly above average. As of January 1st, snowpack ranged from 103% to 111% of average. More than half of the mountain snowfall typically falls from January to mid-April and peaks around April 17. Plain snowpack is currently above normal throughout much of the basin after a number of storms dropped heavy snow across the region during the last month. Our next story, a rural Plymouth County house fire has been determined to be accidental. This story from Sini, Iowa. A malfunctioning ceiling fan was likely the cause of a fire Monday morning at a home north of Sini in rural Plymouth County. At 2.50 a.m. on Monday morning, Lamar's Fire Rescue was called to a house fire on 120th Street uh, on Highway 60. Upon arrival, family members and pets were safely outside. Firefighters discovered the fire above the ceiling in an upstairs bedroom in the attic space. Firefighters removed the ceiling, put out the fire. They were on the scene for about an hour and a half. The fire was determined to be accidental and damage was contained to the accident space above the upstairs bedroom. There was very little damage to the rest of the home. Lamar's Fire Rescue is assisting at the scene or assisted at the scene by Plymouth County Sheriff's Office the Oynes and Orange City Fire Departments, and Campbell's Electric. Our next story is the Nation and World Digest. Uh, for Berlin, two Iranian men were detained in Germany following a tip from U.S. security officials that at least one of them could be planning an attack with deadly chemicals, officials said Sunday. Police and prosecutors said the brothers aged 32 and 25 were detained overnight in the town of Kastrop, Rauxel, northwest of Tez, uh, Dortmund. The officials said in a joint statement the men are suspected to have planned a serious attack motivated by Islamic extremism for which they had allegedly sought to obtain the potent toxins cyanide and ricin. Specialists wearing anti-contamination suits were seen carrying evidence out of an older man's home. Dusseldorf prosecutors later said an initial search of the premises turned up no toxic substances. It was not immediately clear how far advanced the plans were for an attack and whether the suspects had picked a specific target. 
from High Point, North Carolina. Five people were found dead in a North Carolina home after one of them apparently killed the other four and then took their own life, according to police. High Point police said in a news release that officers found the bodies of two adults and three minors in the home on Saturday. All were pronounced dead at the scene. Authorities did not say how they died, but the news release said the killings were being investigated as a murder-suicide. Investigators said there was no ongoing threat to the community. Officers were called to the scene after a man and a woman ran from the house screaming, according to the news release. Investigators said they are encountering two people asking for help when they arrived. Neither identities nor ages of those killed were immediately released. In Brazil, supporters of former Brazilian President Javier Bolsonaro, who refused to accept his electoral defeat, stormed Congress, Supreme Court, and the Presidential Palace in the capital Sunday, just one week after the inauguration of his leftist rival, President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva. In Senegal, at least 40 people were killed and dozens injured in a bus crash in central Senegal, the country's president said Sunday. President Makay Sall declared three days of mourning starting Monday and said he will hold an interministerial council to discuss road safety measures. Uh, searchers resumed looking on Sunday for a snowmobiler missing in a Colorado mountain avalanche that killed a snowmobiler the day before. The man still missing probably did not survive. Grand County Sheriff Brett Schauferlin told the Associated Press. And after three years of restrictions due to coronavirus pandemic, China officially reopened border crossing points on Sunday. The ensuing border restrictions come even as the uh, virus continues to spread in China amid what critics say is a lack of transparency from Beijing. More foreign governments are imposing testing requirements on travelers coming from China, most recently Germany, Sweden, and Portugal. From the Vatican, the public can now visit the tomb of Pope Benedict XVI in the Grottos under St. Peter's Basilica, the Vatican announced on Saturday. The pontiff was buried January 5th, immediately following a funeral in St. Peter's Square. Benedict's tomb lies in the grottoes under the basilica's main floor. From Poland, about 400 items believed to have been hidden in the ground by their Jewish owners during World War II have been uncovered during house renovation work in a yard in Lodz in central Poland, according to media reports. Our next story, according to the United Nations, the ozone layer is slowly healing. Uh, they say it is going to be mended by the year 2066. Earth's protective ozone layer is slowly but noticeably healing at a pace that would fully mend the hole over Antarctica in about 43 years, according to a United Nations report. A once every four years scientific assessment found recovery in progress more than 35 years after every nation in the world agreed to stop producing chemicals that chomp on the layer of ozone in Earth's atmosphere that shields the planet from harmful radiation, 
linked to skin cancer, cataracts, and crop damage. In the upper stratosphere and in the ozone hole, we see things getting better, according to Paul Newman, co-chairperson of the scientific assessment. The progress is slow, according to the report presented Monday at the American Meteorological Society Convention in Denver, Colorado. The global average amount of ozone, 18 miles high in the atmosphere, will not be back to 1980 pre-thinning levels until about 2040, the report said, and it will not be back to normal in the Arctic until 2045. Antarctica, where it is so thin there is an annual giant gaping hole in the layer, will not be fully fixed until 2066, according to the report. Scientists and environmental advocates across the world have long hailed the efforts to heal the ozone hole, springing out of a 1987 agreement called the Montreal Protocol, which banned a class of chemicals often used in refrigerants and aerosols as one of the biggest ecological victories for humanity. Ozone action sets a precedent for climate action. Our success in phasing out ozone-eating chemicals shows us what can and must be done as a matter of urgency to transition away from fossil fuels, reduce greenhouse gases, and to limit temperature increases. World Meteorological Organization Secretary General Professor Petri Talias said in a statement, signs of healing are reported four years ago, but were slight and more preliminary. Those numbers of recovery have solidified a lot, according to Newman. The two chief chemicals that much or munch away at ozone are in lower levels in the atmosphere, according to Newman. Chlorine levels are down 11% since they peaked in 1993, and bromide, which is more efficient at eating ozone, is at lower levels in the air. It dropped by 14% since 1999, according to the report. That bromide and chlorine levels stopped growing and are coming down is a real testament to the effectiveness of the Montreal Protocol, Newman said. There's been a sea change in the way our society deals with ozone-depleting substances, said Scientific Panel Co-Chairperson David Fatley, Director of the United States OSHA uh, Chemical Sciences Lab. Decades ago, people could go into a store and buy a can of refrigerant that ate away at the ozone level, Fally said. Now, not only are the substances banned, they're no longer even in people's homes or cars. Natural weather patterns in the Antarctic also affect ozone level holes, which peaked in the fall, and in the last couple of years the holes have been much bigger because of that, but the overall trend is healing, Newman said. This is saving 2 million people every year from skin cancer, according to the United Nations Environmental Program Director, Inger Anderson. Next we have another opinion piece, this one from Cal Thomas. It's titled, Where Have All the Intellectuals Gone? The new slim Republican majority in the House of Representatives lacks something besides its slim majority and the battle over leadership positions it lacks intellectual depth. The Reagan administration may have been the last one to challenge Americans to think for themselves, and for that matter, just to think. Perhaps this lack of thinking and intellectual depth in our politics is caused by instruments and websites that do the thinking for us. We now tune into whatever newspaper or cable network or website reinforces our beliefs, 
and care a little about how ideas were developed, whether they work, and who benefits the most from them. Growing up and into my journalism career, some of my intellectual idols were William F. Buckley Jr., William Rusher, Milton and Rose Friedman, Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, Gertrude Himmelfarm, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, M. Stanton Evans, and Russell Kirk. Most are now gone, and even the few who remain are largely ignored by academic and cultural institutions that promote a singular secularist and leftist worldview. Conservative publications I read with some regularity include National Review, Commentary, American Spectator, and later The Washington Times, uh, Imprimis, Crisis in National Affairs. These appear most exclusively to be the reading choices of like-minded people. Reinforcement is okay to a point, but it stifles growth. If you can't understand and possibly even come to believe opposing points of view, how will you comprehend them if you don't read them? Liberals, too, have been robbed of their intellectual giants. Recall Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Democrat from New York, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, Democrat from Washington, and publications like Once Great New York Times, 